chapter 5, verses 3 through 10. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are they who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word for us today. Thanks be to God. Now you may have a seat. And kids, you are dismissed to worshipers in training. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his help one more time together. Lord, indeed, we gather before you this morning as people who are in need of mercy. Lord, even in this moment, I am just very aware of my need of your mercy in order to stand here and somehow speak these words of yours. God, would you help me? Would you help us all to come under your word to see your mercy and become merciful people? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning I've chosen a rather simple title for this message. You could probably already guess what it is. Just one word, mercy. Whatever you might think about these beatitudes that we're in, one thing is certain is that when it comes to this one, when it comes to the one that we've come to today in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, there is one subject that Jesus wants us to be interested in, and that is... Mercy. I wonder what comes to your mind when you hear that word mercy. Maybe you picture a judge who's just issuing a slightly less severe punishment or a slightly less severe sentence to a guilty party. Or maybe, maybe like me, you thought of that childhood game we used to play. You know the one where two people would face each other and, and interlock hands and try to try to twist each other's wrists and inflict pain on the other person until one person cries out, mercy. Some of you maybe called that game uncle. I have no idea what saying uncle, like what my uncle has to do with mercy. Like that's one that we'll still have to kind of figure out another time. I still haven't been able to get to the bottom of that. But you might know that game. But as an aside, like kids break the pattern. Like there's better games to play. Like don't play that game. But I'd be willing to wager that if you were to ask most people here this morning, I mean, Christian or not, 
whether mercy was a good thing, I bet most people would say yes. They'd say yes. Generally speaking, mercy is a good thing. Mercy is a good thing for our culture, for our society. And yet at the same time, I'd be willing to guess that most of us would probably rather not be personally too involved with it. I mean, we don't want to have to be at somebody else's mercy. My guess is, even if we would say that it's a good thing, we probably don't make a, we probably don't cultivate a regular habit and make a, a regular practice of deliberately engaging and showing others mercy. Which is why we might be surprised to hear Jesus say that when it comes to you and I living the good life, mercy is absolutely essential. Just by way of reminder, or if maybe you're now just kind of joining us for the first time in our series in the Sermon on the Mount, we're looking at these Beatitudes from Jesus, kind of one at a time throughout this opening part of the Sermon on the Mount. These, these Beatitudes, these blessed are statements of Jesus, what Jesus is doing here, he's, he's painting a picture of the good life. This is Jesus' vision for all human flourishing. This is his picture of what genuine human happiness will look like. And so far, pretty much everything he says goes against everything that you and I would expect. The ones who are poor in spirit, he opens. The, the ones who have no, who know they have no spiritual resources in themselves at all. The ones who mourn, the ones who mourn over their own sin. The ones who, who don't react and get offended when wronged. Those who, who deep down know they're not righteous, but they want to be. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those are the blessed ones. Those are the ones living the good life. Those are the ones that God is going to give the kingdom to. Those are the ones that God is going to comfort. Those are the ones who will inherit the earth. Those are the ones who will be made righteous and will be satisfied by God. But now we come to this beatitude that at least at first glance, at first glance, this one seems to be even, even more heavily weighted towards our attitude toward others. Blessed are the merciful. But even as we look more closely, what we're going to find is that even in this beatitude, Jesus is not just simply speaking to how you and I ought to treat others. No, even in this beatitude, Jesus is revealing so much about how you and I see ourselves and how we see ourselves before God. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Each week throughout this series in our Beatitudes, what we've been doing is trying to just kind of paraphrase exactly what it is that Jesus is trying to communicate in each of these Beatitudes. We've been intentionally using more words than the Beatitude itself to kind of communicate in just simple, the clearest, kind of simplest terms that we can what Jesus is getting at. And so if I were to paraphrase what Jesus means when he says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy, he's saying something like this. He's saying the good life is one that is full of 
of inward compassion and outward action towards those who are in need just as God is and will be toward us. That's what Jesus means when he says, blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. That's what he means. That's how we could paraphr paraphrase this beatitude. But, but even in saying this, he's not just saying, here's what I mean. In saying this, he's trying to actually accomplish something in us. He's trying to produce something in us through this beatitude. In fact, I think there's three things, or there's at least three things that Jesus is trying to get done. And the first one is probably pretty obvious but it still needs to be said. First and foremost, what Jesus wants to get done here is that he wants us to be merciful. I mean, that's what he's doing by, by giving us this beatitude. He's painting a picture of the blessed life. Blessed are the merciful, and he's doing that in order to invite you and I to step into the merciful life. He wants us to be merciful people. So, so what does that mean? I mean, what actually is mercy? One of the ways that people have tried to define mercy is by comparing it to, to other things that we kind of have an idea about, other things like, like justice and, and grace. In fact, maybe you've heard something like this kind of definition before. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And grace is getting what you don't deserve, like getting better than what you deserve. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. I've actually heard that so many times throughout my life. But the problem with that is that then mercy is conceived entirely in terms of what is not done. When in fact, friends, mercy is so much more than that. And not even just like generally speaking, but especially in the Bible, in the scriptures, especially when Jesus is talking about mercy, mercy is, is so much more than that. Mercy always begins. The starting point of mercy always begins with somebody who is in need, who is in real need, and often not just in need, but often in a desperate need. John Stott said it this way, mercy deals with what we see of pain, misery, or distress, even as the results of sin. So it begins with this recognition of a need and it moves in this, this outward action to, to do something, to take some kind of actionable steps, to take practical steps to relieve somebody's need, to do something to relieve the distress of somebody else. But friends, it's even more than that. There's something else that's happening in the person who is who is showing mercy. Yes, it requires an actual outward action and show, but listen, mercy, biblical mercy, this kind of rich mercy is not just about opening a wallet. It's not just about opening your calendar or opening your pantry or even opening your home. There is a sense in which you are opening your heart. There is a very specific heart response and heart reaction that is going on even in the person who's, who's showing mercy. You know, one of the closest synonyms that we see in the Bible to mercy is the word compassion. In fact, in some places, the, the two terms mercy and compassion, they're actually used interchangeably in the Bible. Compassion literally means to suffer together. 
friends, there is a sense in which when we are experiencing mercy, not just like receiving, but when we are showing mercy, we begin to identify with the one who is in need. It's not just seeing a need, but it's seeing a person in need. It's seeing a a fellow human, somebody else who has been made in the image of God, just like we have been. And so they are full of dignity and value and worth. And so even though they have need, we don't just see the need, we see the person who has the need, we see their distress, and we even begin to, to in a way, feel that same distress that they have. And so we move towards them. We move towards them in compassion to enter into their situation. Mercy always involves this inward compassion and outward action toward those in need. There's a great example just later in the same exact gospel of Matthew where Jesus is setting out on his normal kind of daily itinerary and travels. He's got his plans, places he wants to go, sermons he wants to preach, people he wants to see. And as he's going about, he passes two blind men. And he hears them shout something. It says this in Matthew 20. There were two blind men sitting by the road. When they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Jesus stops in his tracks. He goes to them. He asks, what do you want me to do for you? They ask that they'd be able to see and to see him. And it says, moved with compassion. The Lord Jesus Christ moved with compassion. Jesus touched their eyes. Immediately they could see. And they followed him. Crying out for mercy. Moved with compassion. Jesus has this this inward compulsion that moves toward outward action towards those in need. And that is the exact same kind of mercy that Jesus is calling us to in this beatitude, to go and become merciful people. But let's be honest, it's not easy to do, is it? Why is it so hard for us to be merciful people? I know one of the reasons we'll say is because we don't have time. Listen, I understand that. The reality is, is if we don't ever leave margin in our lives for this kind of thing, then we'll never actually be able to engage in acts of mercy. I mean, just imagine with me for a moment that a family decides, like they sit down intentionally, have a conversation about this, and they decide we as a family are going to engage in fewer activities simply so that we are freed up and ready to respond when an opportunity presents itself to be merciful to somebody else. Imagine a family sitting down and deciding, we are actually going to have someone in our family work less just so that we can have more margin to respond to opportunities and be merciful to other people. Now, even as I paint those pictures, there's probably an element where you're like, I have a hard time picturing that. I have a hard time picturing that because those aren't typically the kinds of conversations that families sit down to have. And again, we think, well, it's because of time. There's always just so much going on. We're all crunched for time. But I don't think it's just about time. It really comes down to how we define the good life. 
The reason why we're so crunched for time is because we think all those things that we're spending our time doing are ways of satisfying ourselves with the good life. I mean, why take time away from our own pursuit of happiness and the good life to be merciful? When in point of fact, that is the entire point of the Beatitudes. Jesus is saying, oh, how often do we just get the good life Wrong. Blessed are the merciful. Not blessed are those who get ahead. Not blessed are those who who have more or live the carefree life. This is why, friends, even this, every part of the Beatitudes, but even this one, maybe even especially this one, it's all paradoxical. It all just feels so upside down and counterintuitive. You and I, we tend to think the good life is one that is free of having to be encumbered, free of having to be weighed down by the burdens of other people. Most of us think if we can just be free from other people's burdens and problems and issues that kind of invade into our space, then we'll be light and free and easy, and then we'll be living the good life. And Jesus says, no, it is the absolute opposite of that. The good life, those who are actually truly able to experience a deep sense of immovable joy and happiness in this life are are precisely the ones who are able to enter into the afflictions of their fellow person. But look, we don't just struggle because of time or even the definition of the good life. I think sometimes we struggle to be merciful because we just confuse mercy with fixing people, changing people. How often do we hold back from showing mercy to other people unless that person can give us some kind of a guarantee? You know, if I'm going to show you mercy, what kind of guarantee are you going to show me that after I do this, you're not going to be in need again so that I have to keep showing you mercy? Friends, that's not mercy. That's a That's a loan. Even if you're not asking for for money in return, you're asking for a return on investment. Or sometimes, maybe not even it's not even that. Maybe it's not even that personal. Sometimes we're just we're so distracted by our desire to be so practical and pragmatic that no, we don't want to show mercy to an individual person. We want to fix the whole world. I mean, why show mercy to one individual? We should be pulling back and taking time to fix all the larger societal structures. I think about one of the most famous stories Jesus told, not in this gospel, but in Luke's gospel, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's a made-up story that Jesus tells about a, a man who is traveling a dangerous road from Jerusalem all the way down to Jericho. And on this road, some robbers jump out and ambush him and beat him up and take all his money and take all his clothes and just leave him there to die. And a priest comes down on the road and passes by on one side and just kind of leaves him. And a Levite comes down on the other side of the road and just passes by and leaves him. And a Samaritan of all people, people who were despised and looked down upon by Jews in that day, he comes upon the naked and beaten man and he kneels down. Jesus even says, moved with compassion. He kneels down, he bandages his wounds puts oil on his wounds, puts the man up on his, on his donkey, rides the man to an inn, pays for the man's room, tells the innkeeper anything he needs, get it for him and charge it to my account. 
And if that story wasn't in the Bible and you and I were told that story, we'd be saying things like, yeah, but you know what? What was that guy doing on such a dangerous road in the first place? Uh, what time of day was he on that road? Well, why did he go by himself? I mean, why didn't he think about bringing a friend with him? Is he going to go on that road again, even after I spent all this, this money? Or, or maybe you think, you know what? What we really should be doing is thinking about ways we can create and empower. And if we can use that word empower, we feel even be better about it. We always want to use the word empower. We need to empower this grassroots safety movement so that we can ensure that no one else ever falls into trouble on this, on this road. We need to ask the bigger questions about what kind of society we have, that why this road is so, so dangerous. What are the systems and particular structures that perpetuate criminal activity? And look, let me tell you, all those things are good. And if you want to ask and answer all those questions, like let me be your cheerleader and I'll pray for you and also pray that you don't break anything. All of that is good. And at the same time, at the end of the parable, there is a man naked and bleeding on the road who just needs mercy who just needs mercy at the end of that story jesus says because the whole question of that story is well who is my neighbor jesus says which of these three that passed by do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers and the person who asked the question says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Church, Jesus wants us to be a merciful people. And listen, there's all different kinds of ways that you can do that. Many of you can even probably think of opportunities, just natural, relational opportunities that you have maybe in your own life right now. But listen, uh, this, it's not by accident that we're talking about this on the same Sunday as Safe Family Sunday. When I say it's not by accident, uh, I do mean like that's not by our planning. Like our planning actually was an accident. Like, we did not say, oh, hey, guess what? Let's have Safe Families Sunday on the same day that we're talking about mercy. It just lined up that way. And look, I'm not saying, like, Amy didn't ask me to say this. I mean, she asked me to wear the T-shirt. It's like, I'm always good to wear the T-shirt. Amy, like, anytime you want to ask, you can wear the T-shirt. Like, I'll wear the T-shirt. She's, she's not asking me to say, like, every single one of us today needs to respond to this message by going out and signing up to help out with Safe Families. But if you are presently asking yourself right now, what can I do to be a more merciful person? There is no excuse to not go out after this message today and go to the table that is out there in the commons and stand in line and wait what you're going to have to do because so many of you are going to respond this morning and go out to that table and find out all the different myriad of ways you can be involved with just safe families. Listen. So many of our partners, no, not so many, all of our local partnerships have some element of showing mercy in them. But today is a great opportunity to go out. You saw that slide that Amy showed us before. Friends, safe families with all those different roles and jobs and needs, it, it is an ecosystem of mercy. Every single one of us can do something 
even in the context of this local partnership to be merciful. So do that, as Jesus says, go and do likewise. But even in all this, I think there's an even bigger obstacle. In fact, so much so that I think it actually deserves to be its own point. I think it's actually one of the other primary things that Jesus is actually trying to get done in this beatitude. This is the second thing that he wants to get done by giving us this, this picture of the good life that's, that's characterized by this inner compassion and, and outward actual action and taking steps towards others in need. And that's this. Jesus wants us to see our need for mercy. He wants us to see with greater and greater clarity our actual, real, every single one of us, our need for real mercy. Friends, this is just implied right here in the beatitude itself. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The only way that makes sense, the only way that... that that whole thing can even hold together. And the only reason anyone would ever therefore then be interested in being merciful is if you are a person who needs mercy. But let's just be honest, that's not typically how we see ourselves, is it? We don't typically see ourselves as being people who are in need of mercy. We don't think we need mercy. It, at the very least, we would say that we don't need mercy from, from other people. We tend to think of ourselves as being highly competent people who don't ever need to be at the mercy of somebody else. But so often I think we get that wrong. I'm just going to give a very minor example, right? Like when, when someone's late for a meeting that you're in, like what do, you, what do you typically do, right? If they're late, you are far more likely to make an assumption about them that they're late because they're lazy and they don't plan. But when you're late, it has nothing to do with you, and it's entirely because the traffic, which is outside your control, or the construction, or the alarm clock had a malfunction, but it never has anything to do with anything about you in your person. Why is that? And I know that's a tiny example, but like, at least it's one that you can understand like, and agree about, because everyone's late sometimes. We'll always make excuses for ourselves, because we don't want to be at the mercy of somebody else. But listen, you know what? I don't care how competent you are. I don't care how competent you are. To be human is to be imperfect. It's to make mistakes. It's to make errors. It is even to sin, which is this, this flaw at the deepest level of our being, and we all do it. And there are consequences to our sins, and sometimes some of our sins have small consequences that nobody else can see, and sometimes some of us have consequences to our sins that are huge and massive and life-changing that everyone around us can see. But either way, I mean, who among us really just wouldn't want to be on the end of receiving mercy because we all need mercy? Some of us struggle to see it, but others, others here actually see it all too clearly. If you've ever been afflicted by depression and its debilitating darkness, you know you need mercy. If you've ever suffered an addiction and its constant suffocating presence, you know you need 
mercy. If you've ever been diagnosed with any kind of disease that puts you in a condition of experiencing pain, real pain, chronic pain, or if you've experienced any kind of real tragedy and, and grief, you know how, how incapacitating it can be, how it just takes away, destroys their, your functional ability. If you've experienced anything like that, you know all too well, firsthand from real experience, how much you need mercy. Listen, I want to be careful here. I'm not saying, I'm not saying this is why any of those things have ever happened to you or anybody else. But if the outcome, if the outcome of any one of those things is that you understand your need for mercy more clearly, and therefore that makes you a more merciful person, well then according to Jesus, you're living the good life. Listen, friends, apart from seeing your own need for mercy, you'll never be a truly merciful person. You might be nice, like you might be kind, you may even be charitable, but you won't ever be truly merciful. Look, even in all this, I know I'm using human examples, but even in all this, the primary way each of us needs mercy each and every day, each and every moment of every single day, our greatest need is, to, is constant, to be constantly in need from mercy from God. I mean, just think about this for a moment. What if any time any of us ever made a mistake, what if any time any of us ever were ever in error, any time any of us ever, ever sinned, if at any time any of us did something that God did not want us to do or didn't do something that God does want us to do, what if every single time God instantly just came after us and held our feet to the fire. If God ever treated us like that, even for a fraction of a second, we would be, we would be instantly and eternally ruined. But he's not like that. Listen, sometimes that's what people think God is like. Sometimes that's what people think this whole Christianity thing is all about, how God is kind of out to get us anytime we trip up, make a mistake, and friends, that could not be further from the truth, and that's the third thing that Jesus wants to accomplish right here in this beatitude. He wants, he wants us to have this increased confidence in God's continuous and infinite mercy towards us. God stands ready all the time at all moments to show mercy to all who come to him, aware of their need. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Listen, that's not like some kind of physical law. This beatitude is not kind of setting up some kind of like, like law, like, like gravity, like what goes up must come down, or, or even like what, what goes around comes around. This is not some kind of like just simple exchange, like anyone who shows mercy automatically gets it from God and he's going to show you his mercy. 
it's not as if anyone can actually earn God's mercy by showing mercy to somebody else. Friends, that would actually, not only would that go against just the entirety of the fabric of what the scriptures teach about how how we relate to God, but it would even actually just go against the basic definition of what mercy is. If you could earn mercy, it wouldn't be mercy anymore. If you could earn mercy, mercy wouldn't be mercy. Mercy would be, would be fair wages. It would be just rewards. Because that's not what Jesus is calling us to. Don't forget how these whole, this whole set of beatitudes began. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Friends, the picture here is of a person who's, who's humble, who's repentant. They come to God with this, this broken and contrite heart. They see their need. He graciously responds by, by granting all things. He graciously gives the kingdom to those who are poor in spirit in everything that comes with, including the, the kind of life that is fitting for a citizen of the kingdom, which is a life that is characterized as being full of mercy. Listen, friends, this is not something that God does begrudgingly. It's not as if God ever hems and haws and says, well, I guess I guess I have to just show you mercy. No, this is what God loves to do. This is what is one of the things that is just most consistent with his actual being and nature. This is a, one of the most consistent just expressions of who he is as our God. It just flows from his character and his, his being. I mean, do you remember all the way back in the book of Exodus when, when Moses... He's speaking with God. He says, God, I want to see, he says, I want to see the fullness of your being and your glory. Give me the fullest possible picture of your glory, unhindered. And, and God says, no, Moses, like, I'm sorry, man, like, you can't handle that. That's a paraphrase, obviously. He's like, Moses, you can't handle that. So I tell you what I'll do. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of this rock and cover you up with my hand and cause my glory to pass by. And at the last moment, you can turn back and just catch a glimpse of it. And so when he does that, God passes by and God proclaims his own glory. This is how God wants his own very nature and essence. This is the fullest, at that time in the scriptures, this is the fullest picture of what God is like. He proclaims his own name by saying, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In, at that time, what was the fullest revelation of God's character and being the very first word that comes out of God's mouth is merciful. Friends, this is simply who God is in himself. Now listen, I know, I know that there's these debates among theologians about whether or not God technically has emotions, what it even means for God to, for God to feel something. And look, I'll just be honest, like I'm not really all that interested in all that. I mean, I know about God's impassibility but even more than that, even more than that, I understand that somewhere in the, 
in the incomprehensible complexity of the inner life of God that he looks upon us in our helpless estate and he causes himself to to somehow within that complexity of his inner being, he causes himself to be moved by our situation. He causes himself to be moved by our helplessness, by our need, so much so that he actually comes down in the person of the eternal divine son of God who comes down and he literally wraps himself in our situation He clothes himself in our humanity. He takes on the fullness of all our experience, moved in compassion such that the greatest revelation of God's character moves not in his passing by Moses in the cleft of the rock and saying merciful and gracious, but by him coming down in the person of Christ and stepping into our situation and taking it on and not just taking it on, but saying, I am going to move towards you in compassion and in action. I am going to deal decisively with your situation and mercy, and I'm going to take on everything that is broken about you onto myself and I am going to fix it. And I am going to fix it forever. Friends, the person of Jesus Christ is the very expression of the fullness of the divine character of God and he is the very mercy and compassion of God with us in the flesh. Such that anyone Anyone who sees their need and looks upon Christ and says, Lord, have mercy on me, you will receive mercy. You will receive it today. You will receive it anew every single day of your life and you will receive it for all of eternity. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. I'd like to argue that whether you know it or not, the whole reason why almost everybody in our society would actually agree that mercy is a good thing is not because it's so obvious that mercy is a good thing. The reason why most people would agree that mercy is a good thing is because the cross and the person of Jesus Christ is being proclaimed throughout the world ever since he was raised from the dead. Like, I realize that might sound like a bold claim. Actually, it's not my claim. In his book, The Air We Breathe, author Glenn Scrivener demonstrates, he demonstrates, I think convincingly, with clarity throughout history, how how so many of the values that, that you and I just assume are good things in our society, things like equality and mercy and justice and fairness and compassion, So many of those things that people, non-Christians included, we just assume are good things. 
Those things have not been assumed to be good throughout most of human history. And it is not until the gospel, the proclamation of the good news about Jesus Christ and the influence, the influence that Christianity has had over all of, of Western society, it's not until that, that happens that cultures and society begin to see things like this as, as good. I mean, even here in Jesus' own day, I mean, do you know how people in the first century in Jesus' day in the Roman world, do you know how they viewed mercy? They would have said mercy was a disease. They would have said all mercy does is perpetuate human weakness. All mercy does is prevent justice, which back then, justice, they defined justice as the strong getting on top of the weak. Like we say the strong eating the weak is unjust, that was their actual, in Roman society, that was literally their definition of justice. The strong eat the weak because the strong are better, and so they get what they deserve, and the weak get what they deserve. And friends, that's not just true of ancient Rome. We see that exact same mentality in all of the most, the most secular societies throughout all of modern history as well. Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher and ardent secularist, Against Christianity, he called mercy a poison. He said, mercy is contrary to all natural law. If you just look out at nature, and if you derive what you think is good and bad simply just from looking at nature, you would never come to the conclusion that mercy is good. As it's been said, nature is red in tooth and claw. Listen, Nietzsche didn't just say it was bad. He blamed Christianity for it. He said, Christianity has taken the part of all the weak, the low, and the botched. And this is a paraphrase now. That part was a direct quote. This is a paraphrase. And Christianity has ruined society and prevented the progress of society because of it. Now, listen, I disagree with him about mercy. But he's right about where it comes from. Christianity has indeed taken the part of all the weak, the low, and the botched. Because in the person of Jesus Christ, God himself has taken the part of the weak and the low and the botched. And friends, that is the reason the end of the day, ultimately, that is the reason why we want to be a merciful people, not just because it's good, not just because it's good for, for society, though it is, but because it reflects the very heart and character and life of God himself, who has demonstrated infinite mercy toward us and his son, Jesus. Church, let me just close by reminding us of one of our core values as a church. We want to be a compassion-hearted church. This is how we define that. We want to be a church that upholds and honors the dignity, value, and worth of all human life. All human life, regardless of age, 
gender, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, physical or mental abilities. We want to uphold the dignity and value and worth of every single image bearer around us. And therefore, we should, we should go out into this world. We should seek the welfare of the city around us. We should be blessings to, to people and to families and to neighborhoods with mercy and compassion and justice. Because God has shown that to us. So church, even now as we prepare our hearts to respond this morning by coming together, by coming to the Lord's table, let us take a moment in quiet reflection. Let us learn what it means even in the quietness of our own hearts to pray. Lord, Mercy on us.